Yeah, I can't hear it either right now. Are we texting someone in the lecture today? I just texted Anna. Too many buttons. Now can you hear me? Yes, no? Nobody can hear? Ah, I at least have one thumb. Yeah, we can hear. Keep asking questions. Ask the person to describe back to you the job as you have shown them and they are showing you back. And you probably then have a pretty good chance of knowing that they know. Oh, come on. Don't forget follow up. You have to put the person out on their own. Initially, follow up may be in 15 minute increments. As you get further along, hopefully that follow up can stretch out to every couple of hours. At some point, when you know the individual knows their job, you may not be checking in on them more than once a day. But don't forget to follow up. Make sure the individual knows who to call or who to contact or how to get someone's attention if something goes wrong that they don't know how to resolve. If they're the machine operator and you've trained them and you let them go and you were gonna come back in a half an hour and 10 minutes in something goes awry, who do they contact if they can't find you? Is it the next operator? Somebody else needs to be able to help them. Make sure that there's an understanding of where that next layer, layer is. You can't just push stop on the machine when something starts to go haywire because so many other parts of a facility usually are impacted by the flow of product. If one thing stops, how many other things also now are going to end up stopping before you get restarted? Is there another way to do that? You have to make certain that the new individual knows who to see for help. Keep dropping back. As they become more confident, as you become more confident, in their abilities, you don't have to drop back as often. But don't ignore them forever. And always encourage questions. Questions create a level of inquisition from your employees. It keeps you on your toes 
so that you make sure that you're explaining things clearly, concisely, so that everyone understands how things should be functioning. If you try and shut people off, if you ignore their question or sort of just continue going forward without an adequate response, you start to get into several personnel issues that are usually to the negative that we're probably going to talk about yet this, uh, this morning. Encourage the questions, do a little review, a little follow-up, make sure they know how things are going. So how many of you would like to be a job instructor? Okay, I've got a couple people who are willing to be job instructors. This is good. How do you get ready to be the job instructor? Sort of like, how do you get ready to stand up here and have class organized in some fashion. You may or may not like the organizational structure, but it's the one that I came up with in my head, right? But how do you get ready? It's important that you are. You must plan ahead. Have a clear idea of what you're expecting the individual that you are providing the instruction to, to be able to do what you expect them to be able to know and what the time frame is when that expectation should be accomplished. If you have an expectation that they can disassemble and reassemble a CIPable separator within the first four hours of their employment, that's a really bad set of assumptions. Any idea how many steps there are to tear down a CIPable separator? It's about 125. And you have to do them in the right order. And you have to do them in exactly the right order when you reassemble it or it doesn't work. And you've created a machine that now spinning at somewhere around 8,000 RPM, if it's slightly out of balance, will try and move itself across the process floor. Even though it's anchored and it becomes a hazard for everyone. Make sure you understand what is a reasonable amount of material. How big a chunk are you going to instruct today? Why do I choose to start here? And what do I need that person to know before we move on to the next? Unlike here, I tend to just go on. Whether you actually truly have comprehension or not, I keep going. I try not to, but I do. But if you did that on a process floor and the individual did not know at all what you instructed them today, is it gonna get any better tomorrow? No. So, planning ahead. Have everything ready. What equipment do you need? What's 
supplies do I need? What material do I need? If you need to have a 5 eighths inch box end wrench to do something, then have a 5 eighths inch box end wrench. Don't have an adjustable wrench because you don't want them to do that. Adjustable wrenches, by the way, should not be present in a food process facility because the only thing you typically do with that is damage equipment. Yes, it works in that very short time frame, but it's not what you needed to work on something. Whether you're an operator, whether you're a supervisor, whether you're maintenance personnel, the equipment must be correct. And if it isn't, it's very hard to properly instruct someone how you want it to be done. If you do the instruction with pieces of equipment or with tools that are not the ones you're expecting people to actually use, why did you do it that way? Right? Make sure you have clear outline of equipment, materials, and supplies. Arrange the workspace as you would like to see it anytime you come by as the supervisor. In process facilities, we're looking at a sequence. We're looking at one job task gets done, then the next, then the next, then the next, from the beginning to the end in our product manufacture. We need to have it set up so that if an individual gets sick mid-shift, we don't have a stop. Someone can pull in to that workspace and everything's where it belongs and we can keep the process going. We need the process to work with the individual, but we also need the process to work with a different individual in that same slot. So make sure it's arranged as you would expect it so that any person working who's been trained in that will find it in exactly the same fashion. That's important for continuity. It's important for efficiency. We don't want it haphazardly arranged. Has to be in a very specific order. Break down that task. Spend some time to think about all of the parts that might be involved. If I were going to be training a new maintenance personnel in tearing down a CIP-able milk separator, I need to make sure that I know all 125 steps in that and the order and the why before I start. Because if I don't know and we start doing it and then both of us go, well, I wonder what we do next, is that going to go over really well? No. So arrange your thoughts clearly before you start. Instruct as you would serve a full course dinner. Step 
by step. If you're going to have a dinner where you have salad and soup and a main course and dessert, you don't put all of it on the table at the same time, do you? I guess you could, but some of it would be cold and some of it might be warm at the right time and some of it might be melted before you got to it, right? There's an order. At least we, most of us could probably agree that there would be an order. Keep yourself ordered and present it in that order. And then get the feedback that the individual understands why those steps must be where they are. Ashley. Absolutely. Your hope is that you have SLPs, SSOPs, documentation, and that's why an external company coming to see if you can bid to do some work for them is going to look at all that documentation because if you're following it, then they have a belief that your quality, your consistency will be relatively uniform. If you don't have those documentation there, it's hard to prove that to an outside company. It's also very difficult to show and train a new employee if you don't really know what the order should be. So absolutely, SOPs help you. And if you need to update your SOPs because you've changed the protocol, whoever that individual is then becomes the new trainer for everybody who's consistently doing that task. But to just be the writer of the SOPs and then expect the employees to magically know what the new SOP says, it, it does not work that way. So we need to think about that. Don't present too much material at one time. Some people are pretty good at absorbing information. Some, depending on the type of information, are really good at absorbing it. And some people, it takes a long time to get them to understand why we do it in this fashion. But often that last grouping of employees are your most stable. Once they know why they do their job this way, they will do it the same way, day in and day out, day in and day out, and you have consistency. The people who understand it all really quickly tend to get bored in doing it the same way all the time. They probably should not remain for a long period of time in that routine position. You're going to figure that out fairly quickly, which groups of people think in which ways. But just because 
an individual does not absorb materials very quickly does not mean that they won't absorb it and hold on to it and be able to do that task extremely well in the long run. Break it down into small, small pieces. Don't present all 125 steps today and, no, and not go back. Maybe 25. Review the 25, add 25. Review, review, add. Go back and build on it, but not too much at a time. Training. <clears throat> the biggest errors in training. Number one, the individual doing the training knows the job so well, they think, oh, I can just do that. And they don't actually spend time breaking it down, organizing it in their head, thinking of how I want that workspace properly organized so that anyone stepping in there will have it in the same way that we miss things. We don't spend organizational time in the beginning as the trainer. And when we do that, we cannot properly follow through on the training. That's the first one. Supervisor doesn't take enough time to do their job. Second one, they've got it organized. They do it but they don't ask the key questions to find out truly, does the person know what they need to know? Did I get receipt? If we don't follow through and get the receipt, yes, we had the training. I love these things. Online, silly, stupid trainings. You go through it, 20 minutes, it signs off, it gives you a piece of paper. I tell you what, me, 85% of those, I do not have a clue what I did when I get done signing off, except I've got it finished. I did the training. Is there any receipt? Did I have a chance to practice it? Other than the two or three questions that it asked me at the time, right after I saw that video clip? I came back two hours later, would I remember it? Maybe, but not very likely. Is that really training? It's what an awful lot of organizations have gone to, but is it necessarily helping their employees feel comfortable in what they're doing? And that's if the employee is not comfortable with what they're supposed to be doing, if they're not confident, are they going to do a good job? It's going to be very sketchy. And this is what I was talking to Ethan about on Monday, the monkey method. Sometimes, and actually, sadly, too often, a supervisor will say, well, you show them how to do it to one of their line employees. If that person does not know why there were eight steps there to begin with, and they shorten it down to seven, and then the next time that instruction's done, it's down to five, and then to three, 
we lose things. And if we lose the important points of the why, our quality drops off. Our consistency drops off. Our ability to do what we thought we had written in the SOPs drops off. Because does the line employee, the supervisor asked to train the other person necessarily go back and refer to the SOPs? Probably not. This gets us in trouble. Passing it off, missing the steps. Yes, in theory, it saved the supervisor some time. In the long run, it created more issues than any time level it saved. So can you just change a process? No. If your company has several locations, five or six facilities, and they're all, say, manufacturing mozzarella cheese, you can't have one employee decide to go AWOL and go, well, I'm going to do it in a different way because now you've lost the ability to remain consistent across the company, across shifts, right? Because one employee decides, I'm going to do it differently. Well, they're working a 12-hour shift X number of days a week. Make sure the people know the exact steps that you're looking for in the order you want them to be done. If, if an employee can prove to you as the supervisor that there is a gain from changing it, whether that's a gain in time or a change in resource allocation, only after you've shown that there can be a gain, and even at that point you don't go forward, then the supervisor has to go through and see what that change is on the rest of the process. If I make a change that says I can finish my part of the process seven minutes shorter time than before, well, it sounds good, but if I'm already running slightly ahead of other parts of the process that are bottlenecked. It doesn't make any difference. What is the impact down line? If we don't check that out first, we cannot allow a change to occur. Does that make sense? Because we're in a sequence. So. Change can occur. Change should be looked for. Efficiencies should be looked for. Cost savings should be looked for. But we can't implement them immediately until we go back and verify what they do to the rest of the process.
that ends that slide set apparently. Oh, the chat's telling me something. Oh, I got that solved, okay. So how come Which one is this? It's not the right one, is it? That's the same one I had. Did I open the same one twice? That's where I want to go, but uh, I seem to have lost it. You now have labor relations out there. Come on, slideshow. Okay. So this should be slide set four. Somehow I had slide set three up twice. That wasn't helpful. How do you deal with people? That's really what we're about. We've looked at how to present job descriptions, looking for how we're going to hire the person. Once we've got the person hired, how do we onboard them, provide them instruction to get them into the positions that we hired them for. Now what happens two months, six months, three years down the way with how we're interacting with those people. That's where we get to labor relations. How do we make sure that the people are doing what we're expecting them to be doing? And if our expectations have changed, how are we communicating it so that we can all remain on that same page? Although it's not required, a good elective always would be to take general psychology. But what does general psychology start you down the road for? Being able to understand how people think and what sort of items influence the ways that they're thinking? What changes their thought patterns? Because as you work as the supervisor, you're going to have employees at all different points on a spectrum of whether they're able to do all of the tasks you're asking without stress, they're very compliant, all the way to the folks who are having severe issues on the domestic front, 
their living arrangement with whomever it was has blown up. That stuff comes with them to work. You need to be able to recognize that that might be occurring and be able to understand how those types of changes might impact their ability to do the work you're asking them to do. So you become a psychologist, which some of us are, are or were not ready for when we got into this business. We need to become listeners. We need to be able to instruct. We need to be able to impart messages and communicate, but we also have to be able to listen. As you're working through on a plant floor, you'll know where the murmurs are occurring, right? This group over here is talking about something, and this group over here is talking about something else. Well, you have to figure out how you can use your ears, your very well-trained ears, to listen to those things, not to be eavesdropping, but to make sure that what's being discussed is not negatively impacting your operation. They may be talking about you as a supervisor. Well, you're gonna to have to figure out how to address that. You may have one group that's talking about, oh, we don't like this person over here in this other group. We don't wanna associate with them. Well, then that's something we need to address. Well, this person behaves this way. Well, is that negatively impacting the whole? We need to stop that as soon as we can. Have those conversations with all of those individuals before they compound into a major catastrophe. We want to listen to the little grievances, the minor complaints, before they become a situation where someone decides, or you have to release them, you let them go from their job and then they come back all armed and everything else, and then you have situations that are really not in a good light for anyone. But you can stop those early if you listen. So that listening is important. It's huge. You have to practice it all the time. What happens if we don't? Relationships become strained. You've probably all experienced that at some point, either with the people at home or your roommates here. There are certain things that you can tolerate from them. There are certain things you like and certain things you perhaps dislike. But there's levels of strain in all relationship. That's normal, but we have to figure out how to keep that minimized to not impact the overall objectives of our business entity. Sometimes strain 
elevates to points of disciplinary action. When someone snaps and starts yelling at somebody else, right? Or punches somebody. Oh, that's a bad idea. That's usually moves from minor to major infraction and you have to change the way you're gonna deal with that. We'll get to that before the end of this slide set. But how do you discipline? How do you hold employees accountable? Is gonna be a huge skill set. We can avoid having to do that in a great part if we pay attention, listen and stop things early. Have those conversations early on before they fester and get to a point where they blow up. Sometimes when we don't listen, we'll end up in instances where someone is involuntarily separated. In other words, they're let go, they're fired. We also get to instances where there's voluntary separation. People quit. Who's likely to quit? The good employees or the not so good employees? The good employees almost universally will be the first ones to leave because they cannot stand the way things are functioning. Is that who you are willing to have be the first people out the door? No. You don't want those voluntary. You really don't want involuntary. Sometimes you're going to need involuntary. You're going to get to a situation where some people just no longer fit the model. You need to let them go. But if you have a really good employee, they're most likely to be the ones to voluntarily leave because they can't stand the strain because you were not doing anything about it yet. There's no responsibility on you at all. This is where things start to get much more challenging depending upon the labor structure of the facility that you're working in. <clears throat> if you're working in a facility where there are no formal labor unions, no contracts negotiated, that is quite different than if the employees are part of a union. Because if the employees are part of a union, the whole structure of how the hearings start to have to be structured, occur, the people who must be in attendance, that all dramatically changes. It becomes much more complex in a union environment. But we need to figure out how to not have to get this far, to have to move to formal resolution for the dissatisfaction. What can we do to resolve the issues, the complaints, the grievances before we have to put it up to formal hearing? A dissatisfaction is anything that an employee resents. Now, there's an awful lot of things out there that 
each and every one of you can probably think of from a position you've held before that you resented, right? So are all dissatisfactions equal? No. You, as the supervisor, need to be listening and be able to discern which of those dissatisfactions need action. Some resentments, they're there. Are they impactful against the whole organization? Possibly not. But if the dissatisfaction grows to a point where the overall attitude of the employee changes, their attitude towards their job, their attitude towards their relationship with their supervisor or the business organization as a whole, if we move to where that starts to change, that's already going too far. This is psychology. How do we deal with those dissatisfactions? When they become written, when it's not hearsay, when it's not one employee telling you, well, I heard such and such saying this, but when it's written down, formalized, that grievance becomes a complaint. It's a grievance in the terminology of labor law. Once it's written down, then you have to do something about it. It's not that you shouldn't do something about it up here at the very top. But your skill at balancing those things is going to be what helps you survive and thrive. Your ability to listen early, bring people together, talk about those dissatisfactions before they become a point where they're written down and formally expressed, you're going to be better off. A problem or a complaint, a complaint formalized has to have prompt action. Sometimes those actions you don't want to do, right? We don't always like to do the things that we end up needing to do. But sometimes we have to follow through. And the longer you delay, the longer you delay any of these addressing of a dissatisfaction, addressing of a complaint or a grievance, they don't typically resolve themselves. They, in general, get worse. So challenge, identify the cause. Am I just sick and tired of the way this person flips their hair all the time? And I finally have gotten to the point where I just can't stand it? And now I can't stand them? And what's the thing that really ticks me off? The way they flick their hair, right? That one shouldn't be that hard. Stop flicking your hair and everybody will be okay, right? 
possibly. Sometimes it's much more severe than that, right? But identifying what it is, you have to do a little detective work. So not only are you a psychologist, you're a detective. You thought you were dairy scientists. And this is the big challenge. Frequently, the employee will not admit that they have an issue or a problem. And if they're not willing to admit, it's very difficult to act upon it. You've been able to identify the symptoms. You have had other people observe them and identify the symptoms. But if the individual themselves is not identifying the symptoms and acknowledging that they become an issue, it's very challenging to resolve. It's tricky. It's people. People are always tricky, okay? So we have to figure out how we're gonna deal with the complaint. And each and every one of you, our objective is to build a toolbox of options for you. But do you use the same exact set of options every time? No. Because some of the, the overarching issues leading to the complaint may appear to be the same, but you have to look down to the details and then address it based on the details. It is not a one-size-fits-all set of responses, especially when the person who has been identified by multiple sources as the primary point of the issue does not themselves feel that they have any parts in that issue. It's really hard to resolve. So if we don't have satisfaction, if people don't believe that we're gonna act upon the, dis, the grievances, if we can't keep our whole work group together, our leadership suffers. We're the supervisor and we've got 10 employees on our shift and one of them is not getting along with the other nine. The other nine are gonna be looking to us as the supervisor to resolve something and if we don't, now they have lowered their valuation, their expectations of the leader. And when that starts to occur, when leadership starts to degrade, it's really hard to rebuild it. Once it starts that downward spiral, we start to get more and more grievances and complaints. If we put our blinders on and say, nope, I don't see any of them at all, does that mean they go away? It only probably means that they're multiplying, not vanishing. When that all starts to happen, the morale of the overall group decreases, 
people are less inclined to do their job well. They're less inclined to want to remain civil to the other people within their work group. They're less inclined to be civil to you, which then causes your leadership to suffer even more. When all that happens, discipline cases go up. If you're starting out with new employees and you bring them into this little hornet's nest of a situation, do you think they're going to stay very long? No. Gets them off to a really bad start. So we're going to stop there. Working on how to handle the complaint. Handle that listening at the beginning. So we're not just eavesdropping, but we're keeping tabs on how people are interacting with each other. Or on how they're dealing with certain situations in the process. Because if consistently the same complaint is not about the people, but about a step in the process, well, that's something different in the way we have to approach it to resolve it. All right. We'll see some of you this afternoon. Right? <laughs>